Hey friends, ever wonder if you'd be the person to stop and help that guy who got beat up in the story of the Good Samaritan? Our guest this week took the road less traveled when she decided to do everything she could to help break down systems of injustice. She shares those stories with us uh, and her journey into it. It's pretty fascinating. You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 330, Michelle Frigno Warren and Life on the Jericho Road. Welcome back to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. I'm your host, as always, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for being here. I'm glad that you've downloaded and that you uh, are going to enjoy this conversation. It is going to be one that I think is going to spur you. Maybe it'll challenge you. I hope it does. And I hope that it uh, just spurs you on to and maybe ask some questions and Take, a, take an action in your walk with the Lord. That's what we're always about here at Halfway There. Um, it, as always, if you want to, go ahead and uh, go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com, hit that Patreon button, and support the show. Thank you to those of you who have already done that. Uh, it really does make a difference, helps us keep the show running, which is very, very helpful. All right, so let's get into our conversation today. Our guest uh, is she, we've just been talking here. I'm so excited about this conversation. She has been working in Christian community development for over three decades. She's an author. We've got, she has a book we're going to talk about. She also is a, uh, she's a consultant. Uh, so our guest is Michelle Frigno Warren. Michelle, welcome back to Halfway There. Oh, Eric, it's great to be with you. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm glad to have you here. I said back, but you're not back. You're the first time with us. No, I appreciate my you being first here. time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's great to talk to you. And uh, I know that you've, you're doing some really interesting work. What does that mean? You've been in Christian community development. And like, what do you do? Kind of give us that broad strokes or take us a little deeper into like what you do right now. Yeah. So, well, right now I actually am running my own consulting company while living in my community. But Christian community development is well, community development is developing communities and communities that may not have the same opportunities, same on-ramps. Typically, when you do any type of community development, it's in a, it's in a neighborhood, it's in a city, state, it's global, um, that you really work to support the development and flourishing of a community. Christian community development is actually something that was a term that was coined by um, the Reverend um, John Perkins. He's out of Jackson, Mississippi, and he's the founder of the Christian Community Development Association. So I'll let your readers go to ccda.org and learn a little bit about that. But Christian community development really defines our faith and why we do the work that we do. So I, about 30 years ago, actually it was a little longer than 30 years ago, my then boyfriend and I were doing a lot of outreach ministries in our college. And I've always had such a heart for, you know, wanting to practice out my faith. I don't want to just learn about it. I want to practice it. And, and so in, in the practicing and in the journey of that, he and I got just really got a hold of our heart and captured it in such a way to, to open up our eyes to communities that were impacted by racial and economic injustice. He was going to study to be a pastor. I was studying with getting a math degree, not sure what I wanted to do with it, but thought I would teach for a while while I let God just sort of discern my next steps. Long story short, we decided that we were going to be a married couple eventually that lived, worked, and worshiped in the same community. And when you say you want to do work in communities that are impacted by economic and racial injustice, that is, you know, communities that are poor and vulnerable. And so we decided that we were going to live and we were going to work and we were going to worship. We were going to be committed to the holistic work of Mm. really the gospel. So Christian community development is that practice. And I would say CCDA, which is the association that kind of coined the term and schooled us these last three decades. It is a philosophy of ministry to the poor. It isn't the only philosophy of ministry, but it is a philosophy of ministry to the poor that is committed in a very holistic way. So when I practice, when I say Christian community development, it kind of signals to a lot of people who are doing community work that my faith is defining that restorative work. It also helps other CCDA people to know. And then you asked me that question. So a lot of other people can really be thinking, oh, how do I impact um, injustice, poverty, you know, communities that don't have the same opportunities or flourishing 
And so you do it with the model of Christian community development. I will say this sidebar. I am a professor at Denver Seminary and I've taught there for many, many years. Yeah. And yeah. And one of the courses that I teach is called Social Concerns and Community Development. And so, yeah, there's a lot. Well, I've been on some boards in Denver Seminary for many years, but I think my very first course that I taught was January 2012. It may have been a little earlier, but I believe it was January 2012. And I actually was hired to teach as an adjunct. I'm an adjunct. I'm not a, an associate or anything, but um, to teach political advocacy, doing justice in the public square. Because when you talk about holistic Christian community development, I grew up evangelical, very conservative, and really stayed in, if you want to look at like sort of the four quadrants of our Christian life and witness, stayed mostly in like that proclamation and individual discipleship quadrant, which is, you know, a very important formative um, place. And then I moved, in addition to that, moved to sort of that outreach and compassionate ministries. And at some point you're like, okay, I can't just be responding. How do I look at the whole problem mm -hmm. and some of the solutions which moved me to community development? But after many years of doing Christian community development, I began to realize there's something bigger going on than people's individual decisions and even some societal stuff. You know, there's some real systems at play and I don't have the equipment to know what to do with it. So we might get into that part yeah, of my journey, yeah. but, but just to say that I began to work I kept my feet in at, in doing community development that was church-based, but I began to join my community in advocating for opportunities at the, mostly at the city and state level, didn't know much about the federal level. And so I would say that fourth quadrant was the confrontation of injustice. So yeah. anyway, all to say, I got a, a lot of expertise and I got a lot of training in that work. And so at Denver Seminary, I taught political advocacy, doing justice in the public square, and then that master's programs, which was justice and mission, transferred yeah. to a master's in cultural engagement. And then they asked me to teach social concerns and community development. So I've oh, been there that. for a little over 10 years. Awesome. Okay. Well, so I graduated from Denver Seminary. With oh, I did not know that. That's great. In uh, 2009. So that's, uh, we're, we're intimately familiar. Okay. So in 2009 was when I kind of started, they, they launched a Vernon Grounds Institute mm -hmm. of Public Ethics. And I was on that advisory committee. Okay, nice. So. Very cool. So we have some connections going back. Yeah. And I noticed here that you helped launch Open Door Ministries as well. Yeah, I did. Interesting. Mm -hmm. One of the yeah, most valuable things that I did in seminary was we had to do these immersion classes, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the guy from, what's his name from uh, Mile High Johnson Ministries? Johnson from Mile High. Jeff, Jeff Johnson. Johnson. I remember I've taught at his class. I remember okay. that. <laughs> he led it, right? And so he took us around. So this will be relevant for our conversation later. But he took us down to, you know, all these places in Denver that I would never have seen. He took us down to Five Points, took us down to uh, the West Side, or like places where the interstate like divided neighborhoods and told mm -hmm. us about that. Made us go to churches that were outside, way outside of our traditions, right? And, um, it changed my world. Like this was during, this was, I was very, very conservative, very po politically. And he made me go, wait, like there were some things that I was mad about. And he was like, mm -hmm. settle down. And he, and he actually had, had a really good <laughs> conversation with me over lunch one day that I, I credit with starting me on a path of being a lot more mm -hmm. open to, maybe there's more going on here than I'm aware. Right. Yeah. So I, I'm a huge fan and open door is one of the places we went obviously. And then, and all the other stuff that my high ministries does. So I saw that and I was like, Oh, very cool. So I didn't realize that we were, had those connections. So I'm really excited about that. Um, I think it'll be great. So we'll talk about kind of how you got there. So obviously you didn't start here. So let's, let's go back <laughs> into your, into your journey. You mentioned that you grew up sort of really conservative, really yeah. like fundamentalist Christian. Was that was that here in Denver or was it someplace else? Yeah. So, I mean, if you want to get to the really beginning of beginnings is, first of all, I am come from an Italian-American family with Catholic roots. And my dad, when I was about kindergarten age, one, you know, just kind of felt, I know he worked with a couple of coworkers that were actually Pentecostal. And my mom was a Catholic Christian. So, you know, he just did not have a same understanding and awareness of who yeah. Christ was in the Catholic church. And so he had this really profound conversion experience. 
and ended up leaving the Catholic church. My mom, you know, was going to go with him, but Catholicism and Pentecostalism is really, really different. And he just thought, man, there's no way she's yeah. going to be able to go from Catholic to Pentecostal. And he's this brand new Christian. And it's all during the Jesus movement too. So there's a lot of interesting flavors that are happening. And so they chose a Bible, a Bible church. And there was a Christian school that started, mm -hmm. you know, at that same time. So that was sort of my launch into maybe more formally evangelicalism. And it was incredibly conservative. So I'm going to out myself with my age a little bit, but this is happening in like 1976. Yeah. Do you know anything about 1970, you know, 1970s with white flight and a lot of incorporations and in cities and counties were beginning to transfer and change as a result of forced integration. And the many conservative Christians, specifically in the South, began to start. I mean, if you look at the charters of many of the Christian school movement, it's about that time. And so I was in the East Coast in New York, but the only curriculum that was coming was coming out of South Carolina with Bob Jones University and oh, yeah. Becca curriculum in Pensacola. So, so just kind of get that idea here. You know, I'm this young girl growing up with Catholic root parents who are trying to understand the the discipleship of of Christianity within the context of fundamentalism. And then I'm going to church, you know, and school probably every single day of the week, except, except Saturdays. Nope. And so in some ways, my parents and I were learning together and they were catching just the truth and the freedom of God's grace and his word. And I was catching that as well as all of the cultural norms within the church. I, I coined it, I finally had maybe the guts to say it, you know, in my second book where I talked about, you know, how I was taught to love God, to love neighbors and to be a good Pharisee. My parents were <laughs> rotten at being Pharisees and it really was embarrassing. So, so just to say that is a little bit of my upbringing. So I was in on the East coast, went to word of life camp, grew up in Christian schools, you know, so that's what I kind of mean. Yeah, conservative, right? Yeah, so and, really, sort of a fundamentalist kind yeah. of a kind of a American Christian fundamentalist background. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So, how did that shape you? What was what was sort of your, your overall perceptions of who God was and what He wanted from you? You know, I would say the best things that came from that shaping was a love of God's Word. Hmm. I mean, you learned it, you memorized it, you yep. studied it, you were taught to read it every day. And in my school, you were taught to diagram in English, the King James Version. So like, I mean, <laughs> I seriously knew it. And that's where the pharisaical ways, you know, could be. But, you know, God's spirit is alive and active in the world and in the hearts in that are seeking him. And so, you know, so that was always very present. I didn't I didn't take on some of the fundamentals because my parents were so lousy at it, but I was being trained within it. And I think that so, so anyway, just to say that God's word, that's God's word is not, you know, this legalistic fundamentalist, you know, message for us. And it, sometimes, you know, we, we see it as that, but, but I really am grateful for all of those words that were really yeah. embedded in my heart. But I would say nobody journeys with one experience and sometimes there's some aha moments. But if I look back in my life, you know, here I am, my parents bought a house in 1973 and by 1975, our neighbors were African-American. It was pretty much an all white community, but Italian Americans, there was a, we were an Italian American family. There was a black family and there was a Polish family that lived in this cul-de-sac. And when I think about that phenomenon in itself, you know, where there was a lot of jokes, a lot of racial slurs, specifically in those, you know, three racial demographics, you know, God was beginning to raise my awareness to mm -hmm. racial identity, to, of course, gender identity. I think it was, it's interesting. This is such a weird little story. And I don't even know why anybody would give an award for this. I'm not trying to be self-promoting, but in elementary school, I remember, you know, every year I would win for our class or grade, like the pastor's award. You know, she's a pastor's heart. She's a love of the word, you know, whatever. And when I was in eighth grade, I switched schools to, you know, this um, school in New Jersey because we moved from Pennsylvania to New Jersey. And the Bible teacher wanted to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with me. Well, I'm an eighth grader. I'm so embarrassed. I don't even know what I can barely look at him. You know, I just felt eighth grade girls and boys, you know, like it's just an uncomfortable circumstance. Yeah. And he wants to tell me that you have a strong 
understanding of God's word. There's some gifting. You know, it was a very beautiful, almost like prophetic word over me. And I thought, oh, this is because, you know, and, and the award ceremony was like within hours. And I thought, huh, yeah, that's nice to hear. And then the award ceremony, I just assumed I'd win whatever that Bible passed because I always did. And, you know, now I've had this real thing and it was given to a young man. And that's when I began to realize, oh, as a woman, I've reached the age of accountability. And now that I'm 13, I will never be recognized mm. as someone who has any authority or understanding of scripture. So, you know, when we talk about conservatism, I began to make, I began to realize I need to make myself very, very small because this is the time for boys to shine. I literally at my school was taught that girls were subservient. That was the word subservient to men. So, yeah. you know, when I say I've been brought up very conservative as a woman, that's not a small thing. Right. Yeah, that definitely has. So it's very, it's interesting. They call it complementarian, but it's not really all that complimentary, is it? Right. Like it's, it's no. much more, uh, yeah. Interesting. So did that, it sounds like that did sort of adjust your expectations a little bit. A hundred percent. You yeah. stop dreaming and you begin mm. to realize the whole world is not for you. And that, you know, if you love ministry and you love God, then you kind of hope you marry a pastor because maybe you'll get to be in it. Otherwise you don't have much of a future, you know, and it wasn't like I had certain goals for that. I, I just, I was just sharing that that's a really powerful piece, especially in the conservative world. Um, especially as a woman, because, you know, I'm actually not a rebel, you know, I'm not yeah. a super angry person and I've continued to walk into a deeper understanding of who Christ is and who I am as a woman. Um, but that, that had a lot of detangling and a lot of what I'd say resistance to what I believed God was saying his word versus what my culture was saying. So it, it, so those are some really formative early years, but I moved out to Colorado when I was halfway through high school. And I think that big cultural move, New York and Colorado are nothing like really right. began to open, open up my social awareness. So as you're, as you're growing from your personal spiritual and Christian faith to a broader understanding of a shared collective faith, and you're beginning to understand your racial identity, your gender identity, just some of the even regional impacts of Colorado and New York. I was pretty pumped and primed as far as aware of what was going on. And it wasn't just one thing. And I had a lot of questions in my head. I didn't ask too many of them outside because they probably wouldn't be fitting for a girl in a fundamentalist world to ask. Right. But it made me very curious and, and intrigued. And I think God just used that to really continue to expose me. So I ended up going to Cedarville University, which is a very conservative place, but it felt like sheer liberation from where I had come from. Um, oh, and yeah. so I went to Cedarville University. I studied math and and music. And the reason that's kind of important is I was not in major history classes. I mean, I had to get a Bible minor because that was the requirement of the school. That wasn't a problem. But I wasn't exposed to a lot of, I'll say, social movements that were going on in the world. Yeah, you know, this is yeah. pre-internet. Well, well, let me ask you a few questions. So yeah, sure. what was what was it like? What was that difference between New York and Colorado? Like, what did you notice immediately? I'll tell you the good thing. The guys got taller. You know, my mom <laughs> drove me nuts. She and my dad were the same height. And I was just like, I can't believe how much shoe shopping. I hated going shopping. I hated shoe shopping with her. She was paranoid about not getting heels. And I'm like, I am never going to not be able to wear heels. And she's like, you can't control who you fall in love with. I'm like, oh, absolutely can change who I'm going to date. <laughs> and so I don't care if the pickings are slim. I'm not dating, you know, but anyway, so that that's a funny little thing. But yeah, I mean, the West and the East Coast, there's a lot of formality with the East Coast that the West yeah. Coast does not have. There's also a very, for good or for bad, has a very independent libertarian spirit. Right. And, you know, you just kind of let me think my own way, you know, I'll, you know, it, and it's both in both the extreme liberal in politically in the way you live your life, as well as in the conservative, everybody wants to shoot the toe off of somebody who crosses over. Um, you know, that was, that was a really big adjustment. I think it's a small city. It yeah. moves much slower and people are more friendly, but they seemed a little bit more shallow in New York. You're kind of cruel to everyone because it's a defensive posture, but you have like, once you bridge, you know, once you kind of cross the threshold, it's warm and inviting and yeah, you know yeah. buoyant 
in Colorado, it seemed like you needed an invitation to go to somebody's door. So, I mean, those are funny little things. But, Interesting. You know. It is very, very different to get, even from, I grew up in the Midwest in, De, in Des Moines, okay. Iowa. Yeah. So I, I thought when I moved here, my impression was that people in Colorado seem a little bit like they think they're from the Midwest. They're friendly in that same way. But you're right. Building strong relationships is much harder. Um, than it, than it might be. So that's, that's an interesting observation. Anyway, I was just curious about that. Just having, you know, I'm always interested about that. And certainly I'm guessing that the church climate was maybe a little bit different as well. Right. So the very, very different kind of a, of a expectation maybe. Yeah. I mean, it was just very traditional, um, mm. kind of the way you dressed, the commitment to your church in Colorado, you could have one extreme or another, you know, there's very conservative people who were sort of, I mean, out West, and I'm, I'm not saying Christianity and Mormonism are the same at all in their theological sense. They aren't, but some of their practices, you know, are like, mm-hmm. I'm sort of a sect by myself out here in the wild West. And, you know, I need to find my people. And I felt like there was sort of that group that was very siloed, or it was, I had to get used to, you're wearing shorts and sandals <laughs> to church. Like what is wrong right. with you? Like we have special coats and special shoes and special yeah. gloves. I mean, like, that formality and finding Christ in an informal environment. I'm not talking about cool Jesus vibes. I don't mean that, but it was a good experience to shed some of that cultural training from the East coast in its formality to meet Christ. It's not that Colorado is hippie. It's not, but there is a bolder influence and, you know, Colorado Springs wasn't, wasn't the Colorado Springs we know of today back before the eighties. But it isn't unusual to hear to that Colorado, you're going to church every other Sunday. You're certainly not going Wednesday night or, or Sunday night. Like, why would you? You're out in the mountains, you're skiing. You know, it's a very, it's a very unchurched state in many ways. It's very different. It's just so different. I think much more casual. And I think you hit the nail on the head with something that's with the idea of it's just more independent. And there's not this idea <laughs> that. Uh, which is both positive and negative. It's got it's got kind of both sides of that coin. So anyway, that was interesting. Uh, do you think that shaped you at all? Like, did it was it jarring? Was it did it make you long for something different, or what? What was that? Yeah, I think it made me long for home. You know, another mm. thing is Ferrigno is a hard name. Colorado is not filled with a whole lot of Italians. I was the right, only Italian in my high school. I was the only I was the only Italian in my college. You know, and. Italians have kind of moved up the social hierarchy for good or for bad, you know, but I grew up in the seventies. I mean, there was still a lot of, you know, racial slurs. And when I came out to Colorado there, it wasn't gone. That is for sure. But yeah, I mean, I think there, there was a freedom I found out here, by the way, I just want to know there was a freedom. And because I was so young, I was, and I was not, legalistic at heart growing up in a legalistic environment can turn you into a certain person but to Mm. me it was just seeing the love of christ expressed differently and that's probably exactly what i needed before i was going to be heading into life as an adult you know as a 22 year old so i moved here when i was 15 so 15 to 22 was very formative in my faith journey saying you know it doesn't have to look a certain way and i remember thinking that, you know, it's really not my job to please people, but to really seek God's heart and to please him, which I think as a 51 year old, that seems like a duh. But I think for a 15 year old who was trained almost in a Petri dish of what Christians were and were not supposed to do, that was a very freeing thought. Like I am watching faith expressed differently out here, but it is very much faith. And so you you can't box it up. I need to go more deep. And because I had the training to read and study the Bible, it expanded my lens for how I read scripture and saw so much more freedom. Yeah. Okay. So you go to Cedarville. That's in Ohio. So that's like Midwest. So that's a whole different culture. Yeah. Uh, I learned how to eat jello and pot roast. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> jello salads, right? Like that's yeah, a... thank you. No, I won't say that, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah. We call them salads to make us feel better about them. I know them. you do. I, know. Uh, I, married, I married a Midwesterner. So my go. husband actually is from Cedarville, and we will be celebrating our 30th anniversary in June. So I have had to learn Midwest culture as well. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Interesting. And then they do chili too. That's the other thing out there in Ohio, right? Chili, chili dogs or whatever. Um, 
Is it? Is it was is in Cedarville? I don't know if it is. Maybe I'm thinking Cincinnati or someplace. Cincinnati is the chili dog. The chili and place. Pasta. I mean, they they took yeah. Italian pasta and threw chili on it. I <laughs> you can tell by my voice. I have it's... opinions, but I'm not going to share my opinion. <laughs> okay, that's good. Very good. Interesting. All right. Well, so so you go you go to college and then you study. What did you study there? And then how did you? you know, I you had studied, studied Bible math. And... Yeah, I studied. Oh yeah, that's math right. Because you were going to be a math teacher. Because I was going to be an engineer. And my dad wanted me to be an engineer. So yeah, I just thought that's really funny. I don't know how a woman can really do much. You know, like, what am I going to do? Because I was learning things in school and church and my dad thought I would be some major corporate person. So the tension of being subservient to men, you know, in one environment, and then a a dad who saw you and thought you could conquer the world, you know, was a tension that I carried into my formative years. But yeah, I studied math. And like I said, I would earlier in the podcast, I was talking about just doing ministry and doing volunteer ministry. And David, actually, my husband now, he and I were dating and he was doing that as well and doing outreach. And back in the 80s and early 90s, you did evangelism Mm -hmm. and street evangelism. And so he was doing that. And anyway, our stories were intersecting and intertwining. And we decided not only to get married and, you know, kind of pursue a life of ministry with each other, but intention we moved to Dallas where he went to seminary and I decided to teach for a few years so so that's kind of where the teaching piece came in gotcha. but we chose to move into an move into a community that was all african american and it was all section 8 housing um and so that was very formative so we moved into a community that was obviously we were the only white people i was the only you know educated beyond high school we were the only married people in our apartment complex and in that community. And then I taught at the local middle school while he went to seminary. And then he also at night, he was a union worker. So, you know, if you can kind of think, I grew up in a guarded neighborhood, you know, very high level of, you know, so high socioeconomic status, <laughs> mostly yeah. completely white. He grew up in a small town like Cedarville. He grew up in Cedarville. His dad was a professor there, predominantly white, very small and rural. And here we are in a black community and I'm teaching in inner city Dallas schools. And we were really committed to, to living and working and worshiping in the community. And it was the best formative. Now that was probably the most tremendous formative experience. And I write about that a lot in my first book. Well, what did you learn there? Oh, goodness gracious. I wrote a whole book on it. There's too much to tell you. <laughs> G- but give, us, I, give us the yeah, highlights. I'll give you a few. No, I'll give you a few. I, I really learned how to be a good neighbor. And mm-hmm. and I didn't learn it by doing anything. Like I was doing things, but everything I was doing was really stupid and inappropriate, probably. Maybe not inappropriate, but in uninformed. And, um, but I learned how to receive, you know, I became a student of my community. I, you know, sat at the feet of my neighbors and, you know, we would call them elders, you know, and, and they would teach you, um, not informal training, but just through stories and just through life on life and really sharing the joys and the sorrows, not just individually, but collectively, um, that really was very formative. Teaching is a very confronting work because you don't just, you know, teach but you are, I taught seventh grade math. So, you know, sweet, cute, wonderful hormones on feet walked in the door every day. And it was just right around the corner from a project. And so Mm -hmm. I had probably about 160 kids on my roster every day. And about 80%, I kid you not, 80% was turned over by the rest, by the end of the year. So it was just really, um, you see the trans, the transition, the the destabilization, the destabilization, you see the impacts of poverty, of gang violence. But here's what I really saw, because I could have judged that from the outside. I mean, right? Right. It's what I saw was the resilience of people, the Mm. tremendous love that they had for their children, the hopes and desires and the hard work. Oh my goodness, I'd never seen, you know, the amount of jobs people came, you know, took just to make it and watch them not make it. And, you know, just like yeah. the, the safe, the safety nets of not having those. Yeah. Multiple, right. Multiple jobs to try to just make ends meet. And, you know, that's, that's one of those reasons why when people talk about the minimum wage, it's way more than you think that, mm-hmm. uh, that, it, that should be happening there. Um, okay. So very fascinating. So you end up in this really, I mean, I don't know if trouble is the right word, but it sounds like there's a lot of turmoil going on in this neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. You're teaching, teaching students. I'd say survival. There's a lot of yeah. survival going on in the neighborhood. Yeah. So 
and then all of a sudden this is where, so you mentioned your first book, which is um, the power proximity, right? That's mm-hmm. uh, which, so you find yourself immersed in this mm-hmm. and that then becomes this kind of like moment for you to go, what does that, does that yeah. kind of spur you? How does God interact with you in that? And do you have any struggle with God through this or how does that Yeah, I mean, I had struggles more with social paradigms, the lack of Mm. equity. And it wasn't, I mean, it's interesting because I was at an event. I didn't know Nick Wolterstoff was in the audience. And at the QA, and I don't know, for those of you who might might not know who Nick is, he's just a Yale professor, a premier justice writer, author, um, brilliant theologian. He's a uh, the Christian from Reformed Church. He 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 asked a question during the Q and A and said, "How did you move from love to justice?" And I said, "Because I saw injustice," and yeah. that was really what was happening. Was yeah, I mean, I was deeply searching Scripture, deeply praying and crying out. I wasn't angry at God for injustice. I just knew there had to be more than what I mm. had known. And one summer specifically, it was the summer of 95. So it had been a couple of years. It had been a particularly challenging year um, teaching some really, really violent and rough things had happened. And, you know, my awareness, I would say that most of my young adult life was alarmed discovery. You know, that things mm. that I taught, you know, weren't as they seemed, that things that I thought were supposed to be solutions really didn't do anything. You know, there, there's just a lot of alarm discovery. And I thought, well, we read what we already believe in scripture. So I'm going to spend this summer, because I was a teacher, I'm going to spend this supper, summer meditating on the prophets. And what a what a glorious summer that was, because mm. it met me, Christ met me in, you know, just the God of the Old Testament and the prophetic words of his heart for the broken and the truth of the way the people of God should be living in the world. So, so that was really what was kind of happening. I'm not saying I have, I've had plenty of dark nights of the soul, yeah. but it, but it wasn't in a disillusionment that God wasn't enough in the face of injustice. Hmm. And that I do see, I mean, as not just as a professor at Denver seminary, but I see many, many people especially young people today fleeing and leaving the church because they're afraid that the God of their childhood is not sufficient to impact the pain and the grave injustice and atrocities in our world and throughout our history. And God just sort of gave me some blinders and and really gently discipled me so that I did not ever, you know, wonder about that. I just knew Mm -hmm. I didn't see enough and was desperate to see more. I think another thing is, is that, you know, I was living in community with people. This was, these were not issues I was learning about. I was in relationship with people. And when you're in relationship with people and they're in the hospital because of this, or, you know, I'll bring it up to now dying because of COVID, you know, because of this, or, you know, losing their housing, you're not saying, oh, well, this is a homelessness issue. Do I feel passionate about homelessness? Is this one of my three issues I care? No, you're just like (laughs) responding and you're loving. And here's the thing is you're not just loving one-sided when you're in community love is reciprocal. So every dark night and every bad day and every cold I had and child, I've lost a baby. You know, people are loving me. They're caring for me. And that's what neighboring is. A little bit ago, you asked me one of the things that I learned the most, I learned how to be a good neighbor because people loved me back. And so I wasn't trying to engage injustice and, you know, be this champion. I was just trying to be a neighbor. And that's the second greatest commandment. And as Jesus said, and the first is like it, you know, if you're going to love God, that righteous living of loving God is demonstrated Mm -hmm. in carrying out the justice of God. You know, I have a lot to say about how righteous and justice are connected, but I will, I will just get you a little bit farther in the story. We left Dallas and moved to Denver. And we joined a church called Open Door Fellowship. We were on staff there and moved into a house that Mile High Ministries had renovated and was giving over to Open Door Fellowship. And they, they there's a wonderful, lots of yeah. intersectionality and beauty being birthed in the late 80s and early 90s here in Denver. And David and I were just two young people that kind of came into it. And they said, hey, will you run before we got there? Like, hey, will you? Yeah, sure, Dave, you can be a pastor at our church. <laughs> you know, but Michelle and Dave, will you live in and start a home for homeless teen girls? And we were young enough and dumb enough to say yes, not to their idea, but like to think that we could. 
And as a teacher who was living in the community and only interacting with students, you know, about an hour a day, and then they would move on because it's such a transient community. I thought, wow, that's so wonderful. We could be in a home and really work just pouring life on life with some homeless teen girls and really be a part of it. So we started what now Open Door Ministries is called the Kaya House back in 1996. We started that home and there was no open door ministries. There was open door fellowship. So we were like I said, dumb, young, and well-connected with lots of resources. <laughs> and so we were 25, by the way, that's why I'm saying we were young and dumb. Gotcha. So we started this home and we had to do everything from zoning and making sure the finished construction, as well as raising the money for that and yep. for us and everything that would have for a nonprofit we did that year. And then we had 17 different girls live with us throughout the year. And it was in that year that the idea of Open Door Ministries was birthed. And interestingly enough, we had a baby um, before we got there. So I moved into Denver with a six-week-old. I'm a mother too. Usually that doesn't come up, but, um, you know, six-week-old and we were running this house and I got pregnant, like totally unexpectedly. The kids were going to be something like 15 months apart. Here I am doing, working way too much and in crazy life, living in living in a house with homeless teen girls, going to church at a homeless church. You know, it's just a beautiful, robust life. But I thought, no, I can't have two babies and do this. Maybe God's trying to get our attention. And so we used that as the catalytic moment to say, hey, elders of Open Door Fellowship, you know, we've been thinking about this anyway. And so David pitched Open Door Ministries and they were like, yeah, we've kind of been waiting for you. We We didn't know you would be 25 and 26. Um, but we think you're right. And this is what we're going to do. So we transitioned out ironically and just providentially is more than ironically, you know, the Lord just used that to shift us because when the very last thing was put into play, I lost the baby and it was no going back. So, yeah, so that's kind of the story and trajectory of open door ministries and open door ministries just celebrated its 25th anniversary this past May. So that was May, 2022. So we've been in Denver. We're in our 27th year. Open Door Ministries is in its 26th year. And it has been tremendous to see God really birth the dreams of a community because the church is the one who came up with the idea of Open Door Ministries. The church is the one who came up with the ideas of the ministries and really knew their own needs and dreamed big dreams. And we were the Lord, the spirit was strong and we all followed that wind. <laughs> yeah. Which is, I mean, that says something anyway, right. About you. And I think that is really uh powerful friends for, if you don't know. So like, if you're not familiar if you're not around Denver, you, you wouldn't, but that area, so where open door fellowship is now, I like to go up there to go to the Ogden theater and see, see like, oh, a, yeah. sure, see, sure. Uh, you know, all, and you little, know, little the city has changed a lot in the last 25 years. It has. Right. I don't know that it was maybe Nothing. was, was the Ogden there at the time? Like, it, Oh yeah. No, the Ogden is like okay. a, it's a old. relic. It's like, like a historical. Yeah, site. It's like an old movie theater that they've converted into a concert venue and the Fillmore's right down the street from it. But, mm-hmm. um, but then back up into the neighborhood is where open door fill fellowship is and then all those in the ministry they own all these houses right right across the street yeah i mean it's gotten a lot bigger probably since you were there in 2009 but yeah we're we're a little bit beyond just that neighborhood but but historically that was the red light district i mean there's a lot of history with open door ministries and i talk about it you know in in that first book the power of proximity but also you can learn about it at odmdenver.org and yeah, it was a it was a really great training ground. And I think after being a teacher for several years, starting a home, and then starting this ministry, I mean, it was a very confrontational ministry. And you are confronted not just with people and the problems that are around them, but you begin to see everybody struggling with these problems. And yeah. and it's not just even society. Society, I, I remember thinking, no matter what we do my friends always lose. Mm. You know, I always win and they always lose. And I just kept thinking about that and thinking about that. And that was, I mean, that there was a lot of things that were happening a few years into Open Door Ministries, beautiful things, but disruptive things. And making me not question my faith, but question our practice as Christians. Mm. And what was I going to do and how was I going to invest? And some really hard personal things happened with my own health. And then we, we gave birth to a very sick, sick child and I had to stop. So there was about two and a half years, three years that I stopped everything just to care for him and to care for 
myself. And it is the time that God really used to open up not only, I mean, because I was aware of it, but I stopped doing direct services and community development entirely and began to open up the possibility of working to change systems and what would I need to do? This is not, no nonprofit can help an undocumented immigrant become legal. No nonprofit can help a sentencing of somebody who is impacted by, you know, inadequate um, legal fees. And you, know, you can have the best legal, you know, aid center and even the best, it, it, it's not going to change sentencing. You know, there's certain things that are written in state yep. and federal, even local law. And then there's historic things that are continuing needed to be undone that are just not being represented. And so that really launched me into understanding I need more formal training. And so that's when I went back to call, I'm back to, uh, got my master's in public administration, which I studied um, policy formation and multi-sector collaboration because I was idealistic enough still, even in the midst of all of what I had seen and experienced and was living, that if we really had a table of integrity where people are directly impacted all the way to the people of the power to make it and everybody in between, if we truly had a table of this diverse stakeholders where we listened to each person's perspective and allowed everyone to shape it, then we could have policies that were just and good and right. And my neighbors could maybe win. And in some ways, there you go. That's public policy. Yeah. I didn't really understand politics. And so that's a whole other section, you know, of, I can keep telling you a little bit about that journey, but I'll at least stop there to say that I needed to work on systems. Yes. Which is the powerful thing. So I want to get into that for a second. I want to mention one thing. You're, you're reminding me of a conversation I had with Christina Dent. I don't know if you know her, but you should. So I'd love to I think introduce I know her you. name. Yeah. If yeah. you like, she has an organization called End It For Good which is working for drug policy change because so much of that, and when she tells the story, I'll link it in the, in the show notes guys, but she tells, she told me, she told me this story about realizing that this mother whose child was taken away because she was on drugs while she was pregnant, loved her child. Like she had never considered that before. Right. Like that, that was kind of a, she was like, what? I thought you just did drugs because you didn't love your child. Oh. And then that was like that light bulb moment mm -hmm. for her. Mm -hmm. But it was, and then that's when she realized, oh, it's actually, there's a system here. There's something else going on. And so that's why she works for that. But you, you guys should probably know each other. But anyway, that's, um, that, so that's one thing, but then I want to know about the systems. Cause I think the other thing I'd love to, for our friends here listening to take from this conversation is, uh, a, just an idea that actually there are systems that, that exist. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before with people like uh, Craig Greenfield and Karen Gonzalez and like, this is not a new thing in this podcast, but I think it is a, it's one of those things. Every time I bring it up, every time I start talking to my more conservative friends, God, God bless you all, but they don't want to believe that it, that they exist because I don't think they've run into them. Right. I told you about Jeff Johnson. He's the one who told me, I said, Hey dude, these are here. And I had no idea either until he showed me like, no, this is actually a grocery desert right? Or a food desert. Was that what they call it? There yeah, isn't any good, there's no <laughs> sure. good food. There's no food here, right? There's no, mm -hmm. you, they can't eat fresh vegetables because there aren't any, right? Mm -hmm. Like that mm -hmm. just kind of blows your mind. So can you talk about those systems and like, how, how can somebody maybe like, like me, a, a white guy in the suburbs who has no connection to, to those kind of systems, uh, but certainly benefits from them, what can we think about? How can we change where we're, where we're at and what we need to do and why we need to do it as believers? Yeah. So there's, I was going to say, we need about four podcasts. We need to start taking my class on Denver Seminary, but no, but it's a good question. And the reason I say the time is how can we do it justice? Right. Um, I, no, no, I, I can answer. No, I can answer. Yeah, sure. I'm happy to answer that question, but I'm going to start back. So the very first sentence in my first book goes like this. When you wake up in the morning and the system works for you, you think it's a good system. Mm -hmm. So if that's your only experience, you're going to defend the system. It is hard to imagine. And, and that was my narrative. You know, I didn't, I didn't understand anything as I walked in. You know, I had a lot of 
sort of that, you hear sometimes that white savior mentality. I would have said, no, I don't. But, but I'll say in the big cloud of it, I was going into a community assuming that the reason people were poor, that the reason people were struggling with addiction, you know, and all the different litany of social concerns was because they were bad, not that the system had anything to do with it. And that's why proximity to people and the way they're interacting with the system is very eye-opening. You do not have to have a radical life like mine. I mean, I'm sad for you that if you don't, because I love my life and really it's been beautiful. Um, it's probably every, every, you know, set of, from my upbringing, all my, my whole origin story's worst nightmare, but it was, it's the best life in the whole world. But I recognize that God is not going to ask that of other people, but I would say this, understand that the world that you see, including my world, even now is limited and I, we need to be curious. And so if you think the system is good and somebody who doesn't look like you or even somebody like me who does look like you says it's bad, be curious, don't defend it because you really don't know mm-hmm. what you don't know. And I didn't know what I didn't know. And the more I learned, the more shocked and alarmed I was to discover that the story that had been painted, and it wasn't because people were villain, villainously painting it, they were writing from their experience and the experience is limited. And so right. that's why proximity to people, you know, when you talk about, I think if you said Christina Dent and just having that conversation. So you can imagine me every single week, I have little children. What am I doing at yeah. a poor inner city homeless church? I'm sitting in the nursery with single moms, you know, like I'm learning from them. I mean, like I said, this was not some, you know, major leftist socialist plot to turn a right. conservative fundamentalist girl into this prophetic faith rooted activist. That was not my trajectory. You know, that was not what I thought. But if you are truly going to love your neighbor as yourself, for me, getting closer and closer to the line that pushes back on the questions like, how dare you disrupt my good system? And then how dare you get political? you know, which seems to be just something that people defend and throw out. And I'm like, okay, let's go back to the Jericho road. Let's make sure that we understand that that line, that road across, you know, where the Levites and the priest is walking and the Samaritan, the Samaritan bravely crossed the line and basically defied, you know, whatever kept the Levite and the priest from going over, whether it was uncleanness or I'm way too busy, I'll let somebody else take care of it, or just I might be a victim myself, you know, whatever it is, Christ was highlighting that to do the greatest thing, you know, the greatest commandment is to stop and cross the forbidden line and do exactly what is unnatural and uncultural and expend yourself on behalf of the person who is half dead and beaten up. In that practice, you begin to push back on why is there a line? Of course, I'm going to cross over. And for me, I I, start, I I actually took up life on the Jericho Road. That's that's what it means to be that much enmeshed. I mean, I live on the Jericho wow. Road. I don't have to go and search. I'm not running down the street as fast as I can on my way to Jerusalem, you know, because that's where the Jericho Road. Everybody knew that, you know, precarious precarious road because it was the way, you know, up to Jerusalem. I live there, and and I began to realize because I didn't grow up there why can't we fix the road? Like, why do we have to perpetually respond to half dead, beaten up people on the side of the road? Why can't we, instead of just creating hospitals to help half dead, beaten up people, like, what can we do that's a more just and holistic response to caring for the people who are walking alongside the road? And then why don't we just fix the road so nobody has to, you know, be half dead and beaten up? Because there's other roads, I know, because I grew up on them, where people are not being perpetually afraid of being robbed and beaten up and killed and left for dead. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that is so powerful. I think the kingdom of God, as Jesus talks about it, is good news for the poor, right? It is good news. Great news. And if, if we don't, if we're not living in that, if we're not uh, sharing sharing that. And and you you don't have to, like you said, I love that you said that don't have to choose the same life as you. Right. But we can still be working for it. I think it will change how we vote. I think it will change how we, how we, uh, you know, interact with, with others. It will, it will, it will blur 
the lines and then it will give you the courage to remove them completely. And it also is this line that somehow I have to know I have to be better, especially if I'm working with the poor, like I'm the triumphal one, you know, it it begins to really help us understand what Paul was really frustrated is there's no difference. Like under Christ, you are not better than another person just because you have more wealth. I mean, that is the way the human world and power structure looks, you know, that is nothing to do with the kingdom. It has nothing to do with the sermon on the Mount, which is not the 10 commandments. It's not, Oh, I have to try to see if I can mourn or I can see if I can be, you know, no, this is the point is the kingdom is for everyone. And, and for those who are on the margins, who are vulnerable, who literally are squashed by powers and systems historically, you know, you have to understand Jesus is preaching the sermon on the Mount in the midst of a Roman empire. And he's not saying, well, let's use our power and overthrow the empire. He's saying, hold on a little bit longer. The kingdom is yours. Blessed are, you know, all of these different people. It's not a losing battle when you're that. Don't try to achieve power and status and wealth. That is a human, human, um, I would say a human invention, but it's just the human nature and a human investment to think that somehow God is going to meet you in your power when that is not, that is the upended kingdom of God where, which is why Jesus said, you know, it is harder for a rich man to go through, you know, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to get this, not because a rich man can't get it, because it is so countercultural to believe that it is in our poor in spirit, not our know-it-all, not the system works for me and I'm such a good person, but it is in our depravity it is in our humility, it is in our meekness that the power of Christ is made manifest. Mm. So you've asked about systems and structures, and I just kind of shared that line in my book, but I think it's really important to understand that injustice does not just happen and it doesn't repair itself. That's why we do the work of justice. If repairing injustice was as easy as rolling out of bed, it would have been done. And you know, when you think about the prophet Amos and what's happening at his time. And I'm not going to give you a huge old Testament lesson, but, yeah. but you really should get intimate just in the historical it's really context. Powerful. Yeah. Yeah. The historical context of what Amos is dealing with, with a King who just is trying to not only compromise who God is in his temple, but, but really have it, have everything, have the kingdom of this world as well as, you know, put a little Jesus in there, put a little God in there, put a little temple worship in there and call it good. And here you have Amos just coming up from, you know, this sycamore and fig trees, like, I can't take it anymore. The spirit of God is on me and now I need to move. And then you see him explain, oh, if only things flowed down easily. Oh, that justice and righteousness would flow down like this river of ease. So he's metaphorically giving us this picture that the the well-being and the flourishing of everyone and that people who loved God's are righteous acts. I'm not talking about individual piety. That's not what God means when he talks about being righteous, but that our right acts would become mishpat, the justice of God, those two things together. Oh, that righteousness and justice would be the status quo of the people of God, mm-hmm. but that it isn't. And it certainly isn't in the kingdom of man. And so when you think about if, if, if it's flowing, if it's not flowing righteousness and justice, then what is it flowing? Unrighteousness and injustice. That actually is the status quo and the norm. We see that all throughout scripture. And I don't need to defend against anybody on that one. If you think right. the system is good and it works for you, lucky you. But the status quo is unjustice and unrighteous injustice and unrighteousness. And so what do the people of God do in the face of injustice? Well, we walk up that stream with our justice, with our righteousness. We try to get to the source. We try to reverse and repair and restore, do that work of peacemaking on an ongoing basis. And that is actually the resistance work. So in that second book where I talk about join the resistance, it's actually yeah. how do we do that hard work walking against the status quo? Because here's here's the grief, I think, of God, but definitely it should be the grief of the people of God, is that even those of us who are the children of God, who have limited our language only to a gospel of the atonement and not included a gospel of the kingdom, we actually 
those who benefit from the system are incredibly comfortable with the easy downflowing stream of unrighteousness and injustice. Yeah. And I'll yeah, so go read friends, go read Amos, spend a little bit of time in Amos five and see what, uh, and just, just meditate on it. Ask the Lord, what would you have me learn from mm-hmm. this? And we'll see and see, see what happens, especially if anything that Michelle or I've said today just peaks you a little bit and just mm-hmm. makes you go, Oh man, yeah, it's like a burn your saddle. I would love for you to just to just do that. And then let me know. Let me know. Hit me up. Yeah. Go to ericdemons.com, halfway there podcast.com. You can hit uh, contact. I'd love to hear it. Or you can go visit Michelle and your your website is Warren, right? Dot com. Yeah, dot com. You know what? I would I was gonna say the the prophets probably make up the most pages in the Bible, but they're the they're, they get the least attention. They get the least attention. And it is not, and it's because we we've at least those of us who are conservative, I won't put you in my camp. For me, growing up, it was only the prophets were good only for the foretelling, but not the forth telling. Right. And the prophets have two roles. It's the foretelling of the future. Yeah. I mean, that's really fantastic. You know, it's awesome to know what's coming around the corner and to see it actually, you know, kind of come in line. It's like, oh, good, I can trust this word. And, and you know, I think that's great, but that's not the sum total of the reason the prophets exist. I mean, there was a forth telling right. of the heart of God. And that is why in the second book that I wrote, Joining the Resistance, I actually do a deep, well, as deep of a dive. That's, it's not, it's theologically written well, but it's, it should be as comfortable and easy as possible um, to truly digest nine prophets. So there's nine chapters oh, in the nice. book and I highlight the only, uh, there's two particular biblical texts that I use to talk about joining the resistance. And one of them is the prophets. So I take a each chapter has one prophet that I highlight. And the second is only the parables of Jesus, who of course was the prophet, God himself, you know, not just man, but God and, and right. coming to really usher into a, usher us into a kingdom. He was no long, he didn't, he's not a prophet of foretelling. He is the prophet who has come to fulfill the foretelling as well as the foretelling, you know, right. of the prophets. So I, I think that if you are uncomfortable with even advocacy or activism thinking, well, that's not what the church should do. And that's not what the people of God should do, that it's mission drift. I would say, no, no, as you read and meditate, mm-hmm. ask God to show you new things. And really, I told you in the beginning that my meditating on the prophets began to realize, oh, wow, this is incredibly good and helpful for yes. the injustice and the pain that I'm seeing in the world. Oh, but you know, another thing, but it is important to know that the prophets usually were murdered. <laughs> right, right. They, they, they were not Jesus. Well. I mean, like, it's not going to go well for us. And, and, but, but you read the account of Hebrews 11 and the way we live by faith and the prophetic work of everyone who is highlighted and the way we as Christians are supposed to be living as active agents of faith in the world. It is so comforting and redemptive. When God begins to show, don't, don't worry about the outcome. You know, they don't, yeah. they don't actually, I remember Jeff Johnson and I are good friends and I remember oh. telling him because he and I did a lot of work on immigration reform back in 2009 and 10. And, and then I went to work nationally on it. Never, I never left Colorado, but I, I definitely worked nationally with leaders like Jeff around the country on, on immigration. But I, I told him, I was like, you know what? They don't murder and murder us anymore as prophets. Like we're not gonna have to worry about being burned at the stake or stone. Yeah, I said, I but they just cut off our funding. <laughs> like they just cut off our funding. Oh, I don't well, like this. A... Oh, I'm going to cut off your funding. And we have seen that. My so, right. ministries there... has seen it. Open door ministries has seen it, yep. but we got to keep telling the truth. There's other ways uh, to attack, but I, I don't, I mean, look, we don't have to look much further than MLK, right. To go, well, sometimes they still, they still kill them. But, um, it, and then that is a problem. Okay. Michelle, thank you so much. Friends, uh, if you are ready to get involved or you want to know like what's the next step, you want to take a step into this. The book is called Join the Resistance, Step into the Good Work of Kingdom Justice, the Kingdom of God. Remember, it's upside down. It's the, God values all these things. Uh, throughout this entire conversation, I've been thinking about Jesus and his disregard, not only of social norms, you can see that a lot, but also of um, just power right? Like even in, in his trial and that evening, that night, it, it, over and over again, he's just disregarding the power that people think they have because he knows that God has the power. That's the good news of the kingdom and why we must work for good good outcomes for everyone in, in our society. All right, get the book. You can get it on Amazon or wherever you get books. I've got all the links at halfwaytherepodcast.com. And once again, 
Michelle. Your website is michellefrignowarren.com. You can check out all that there. Michelle, thanks so much for sharing a little bit of your story. Is there anything you want to leave us with? Well, I was going to say there's just so much there, Eric. And I would say that this is a really important time. Every, there's every, everybody stewards an important time in history. And this is our season to steward. And as Christians who look back and see some good, but a lot of poor stewardship, as far as loving and valuing people who are different than us, I would say, let's make sure that history is is spelled out differently. And that when we look back at this time, we can say, not just that there was a remnant, but that the people of God captured um, the work of Christ in his kingdom and did everything they could expended themselves on behalf of those who in need of the message. Amen. We have a responsibility. I think the Lord's calling us to it and it's really his work. So thanks for being here, Michelle. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me.